So someone that I've been seeing pop up a lot in my feeds lately is Andrew Wilkinson. Um, he often has those contrarian views on the world of tech. Yeah, that's definitely his kind of market, right? Like lots of distressed companies, they're unable to raise more capital, leaves them in the perfect position for a company like Tiny Capital to to come in and purchase and, and hopefully turn it around, make it profitable, and then take in that cash, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that is the tiny model. And I think we're entering into uh, this kind of year where these kind of holding companies are going to do really, really well. Yeah. He's been super successful with that model so far. And I believe he was able to really take things public last year. Is that right? Yeah, Tiny Capital went public on the Canadian market. So the whole holding company can is now publicly traded. It's a huge win for Andrew. Um, and what we're going to dive into today is the story of one of the companies that Andrew actually founded many years ago called Flow, which is a task tracking productivity app for teams and small businesses. Yeah, it's probably a pretty relatable story for many of us too, right? A very much of a David and Goliath kind of a tale. It's the story of a decade-long dedication to improving an overly saturated and over-featured productivity and collaboration industry and how they survived as a bootstrapped business amongst a sea of the venture giants. Or did they? You'll find out on today's episode. But first, a quick word for our sponsors. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Okay, so 2023, now 2024, it's been a tough road for venture-backed startups. Convoy, the Bezos-backed trucking company, it was valued at $3.8 billion. It shut down. Health startup Olive AI shuttered after peaking at a $4 billion valuation. And many other startups followed suit by selling off for fractions of what their valuation uh, was, or they just closed up shop altogether. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of them is sort of near and dear to our hearts at Product Collective, at least one we had some experience with. And that's Hopin. Hopin, of course, the the virtual events platform startup company. It was once valued at close to $8 billion. They recently sold off their core business for $15 million. And they're not the only company to to go through a fate like that. Um, There's Bird. Bird, of course, the scooter company. They were once valued at two and a half billion dollars. Now, mm-hmm. recently they filed for bankruptcy uh, and then FinTech startup Plastic. Plastic, uh, they raised $226 million in funding. They just went bankrupt a few months back. So nearly 3.2 thousand private venture-backed startups went under in 2023 after raising a combined $27 billion in funding. That's according to data compiled by PitchBook for the New York Times. And this leads us to another trend that we're seeing. It's the rise of the frugal entrepreneur. Forbes wrote in a recent article, finally, the tough economic and funding climate of 2023 has sparked a shift in the kind of entrepreneurs who will thrive. And this change will become even more apparent in 2024. Whereas the boom years, the most successful founders were those who could pitch, charm investors, win over the media and raise impressive funding rounds. Now, an altogether different skill set is coming to the fore. The shortage of funding available means that most successful startups will be those that are the most meticulous about how they spend and thus save money. Often bootstrapped, these founders survive to innovate at the lowest possible cost and look for sustainable growth and a path to profitability over growth at all costs. The error of the frugal entrepreneur is underway. This is like you. They're talking about me. I feel like this is me here, the frugal entrepreneur. I always felt like maybe I was one of those people that should have been the one to think more about raising money, should be, you know, thinking big, let's go big. Because for me, uh, Product Collective, we're a bootstrapped company, right? We're we're not the billion dollars or bust kind of company. I can only pay for things using money that I've earned from customers, right? And so <laughs> I think this mentality, you know, and I've, I've had businesses in the past where we went the route of raising venture capital, angel investors, you know, it was a different mindset. But ever since starting Product Collective, this is back in 2015, um, I had to take on a totally different mindset. And so I'm seeing this with a lot of other companies. I'm seeing, I'm seeing VCs talk about profitability never have seen vcs talk about profitability (laughs) before it's almost like a bad word to them like you don't need to worry about being profitable so i don't know i'm here for it i do wonder what this means for the way that vcs invest in companies and what what kind of expectations they're going to have when you know these companies might not be billion dollar companies anymore if they're going to care about being profitable Uh, what what do you think about this michael yeah i i actually feel a bit silly because I, I feel like I misinterpreted this trend last year. We were out raising and, you know, I was kind of raising on this um, this methodology of, okay, we can be a cash flow business. But while the VCs are talking about the cash flow businesses, they're not investing in them necessarily, um, at least from the start, right? Maybe maybe there's, there's um, like holding companies that are looking to buy the cash flow businesses, but the traditional VCs are still looking for that huge exit. So we've been turned down for not being able to convince VCs that we have a clear path to 300 million um, in revenue. And yet, uh, so anyway, I feel like 
I, I absolutely feel this. I, I do see the VCs talking more about profitability, but I think it's going to materialize in a different way than I expected. Um, and I think this year is going to be very, very telling to see where do VCs actually put their money um, and what types of businesses get funded in the future. And are we just going to see more truly bootstrap businesses where owners want to retain 100% ownership? Um, and so I think this is going to be a very telling year. I feel a little silly because I, I feel like I kind of got it wrong going to the traditional VCs pitching cash flow business. But, um, you know, we live and we learn. Well, you know, it's it's funny because these, you know, everything you said is is true, right? Like the VCs, they still want to take those big swings. They have to. Like the way yeah. that their business model works, they have to take big swings and they have to hit these home runs. So they're looking for these home run companies. The thing is, I think what a lot of businesses are realizing is they might not be the kinds of businesses that are suitable for a VC investment. So you have some companies that are like, whoa, wait, if we can't get this money, we have to be profitable or we're going to have to go out of business. And some of these companies that we saw raise big money before, that kind of is the case, right? Like they, they were able to raise that money the first time, but if they can't figure out a business model, they're, you're either going to have to get profitable or file for bankruptcy like those or or get acquired and and you're just going to live under somebody else's roof it's sort of yeah. the only options but to your point i mean there still are vcs that are looking to take these big swings because they have to that's how their business model yeah. works yeah so i think understanding that is really important because you're right not all vcs uh, have the same mandate and while maybe the sentiment is switching They've raised this money in a high time and need to still return those high time valuations, even if the market is starting to shift. So I think 2024 is going to be really, really telling. 2023 was a big learning experience for me. Um, but this kind of sets us up nicely for our product story today. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back with the story of the bootstrapped company Flow, who's kind of the David and Goliath of its time. Okay, so you're familiar with MetaLab, right, Mike? I definitely have heard of MetaLab, for sure. So MetaLab is a product design and development agency. They're based out of Victoria, BC. They famously designed Slack, Uber, and even Coinbase. It, that's where that's where the bell is ringing from now. All right, I, I got it. Yeah, I, I'm definitely familiar with their work now. Yeah, so about 10 years ago, the founder of MetaLab, Andrew Wilkinson, he decided he wanted to invest in the team collaboration space. And he thought it was just missing some of the tooling that he saw his team needed. Yeah, so I've always been a to-do list junkie and I got obsessed with a system called Getting Things Done that David Allen created maybe like uh, 20 years ago or something. And I had so much success with it. Like it really did make me way more productive. But the one area that it fell down was that you couldn't really, all, all the existing apps for getting things done and that methodology, you couldn't delegate. And so originally Flow was actually just me trying to implement that that methodology across the company and build software to support it. And very quickly, I realized that getting things done is a super nerdy thing that no one else really wants to do and you can't enforce it across your team. Um, but as we did that, we started realizing how valuable it was to have a global um, to-do list and delegation across the entire team. And so we started building a more generalized project management um, and to do to do management 
software and it was very unique. I mean, back then, there really wasn't anybody doing uh, in-browser. And MetaLab at the time was much smaller than it is today. Back, back then, I think when we started Flow, it was like late 2008, early 2009. I think we maybe had 10 to 15 employees. So we're getting to the point where we needed to start managing across a team, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't a huge team at that point. I can see this it, running an agency. It's tough, right? Especially when you're designing and building all these very successful apps, wanting to own one for yourself makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Metalab was the original business and it, it was a great business. We were making quite a bit of money. We had great clients, but I was watching all these other companies like 37 signals and harvest and uh, campaign monitor that were building these bootstrapped SaaS businesses. And the hard part about running an agency is that every day you wake up and it's a knife fight. You know, you're literally going, okay, we're, we're going to run out of money in a month. We need, uh, we need work. You know, we can't hire people without uh, two months of, of pipeline and you're constantly selling. And it's kind of like you've got a train moving at warp speed and you're trying to put the track down in front of it. And when I looked at these SaaS businesses, um, you know, this idea that I could wake up in the morning and have made money overnight, that there was recurring revenue, that at the end of the day, you're just building a wonderful product and, you know, people are paying you to use it was very, very attractive. Um, and of course, both business models have major downsides, which I learned. But um, at the time, you know, that was really what I, what attracted me to the business model and building it. And it was really born out of, you know, a problem that I personally had. But it is tough. I actually tried the same thing around this time and I was running an agency. It was called Tiny Factory. We built Brandesty as a SaaS product and we were hoping to out-earn our, our agency revenue. And did it? No, <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> I did eventually sell it. Um, it was to a company that was eventually acquired by Envision. So the code lives on an Envision server somewhere, at least until the end of this year. Uh, yeah, interesting. Well, all right. So let's go back to flow. Um, when you were talking with Andrew, it seemed like Andrew, you know, they recognized this opportunity. They were essentially the first in-browser productivity app to hit the market. Is that right? Yeah. And as they launched, the excitement grew. So we were we were essentially the first out the gate with flow, um, and it just totally took off. I mean, we had um, I think like over. 10,000 uh, beta users, a lot of them paid out of the gate. It was really, really popular early on. And they had an early fan in Daniel Shriver, the head of design at Square. Uh, I had a login to Flow that um, from that time that no longer worked, but um, I used the product super early on. And to me, it was... Um, that was before I think things really took off. And I don't know how much inspiration they got from Flow or vice versa. But, um, I, yeah, I just remember at the time, like being like, wow, this is beautifully designed. It's super simple and it's, uh, making a, you know, it's like a, it's a beautiful product in a space that kind of, um, it's very easy to just make throwaway ugly stuff because, you know, it's just productivity. <laughs> you don't need to make that look nice. You know, it's just that thing you're going to be in every day for five, 10, 15 minutes. But because they were an agency, I bet they still had to get the client work done first. Exactly. At first, they didn't have a dedicated team for flow. So a lot of it was getting done off the side of various members' desks. You know, early on, Metalab was, you know, doing client work and then people on the team would jump over and they would 
build flow. And we'd kind of go back and forth. And we were also all junior. We didn't know what we were doing. And so um, when we built flow, we actually engineered it in a way that didn't really scale. And so we had to spend years re-engineering it and kind of rebuilding the infrastructure, which slowed us down a lot. I even spoke with Jesse Jones, who was Flow's head of product, but she's been around since the early days. And in fact, she was the first support person. So listen to how she got that job. I started, I started out at, I guess it was Meta Lab, um, but probably not even that. I basically started working working at Flow as sort of like an assistant to Andrew. Um, just like he, I mean, I, I, it's probably still the case, um, just always has a lot of side projects going on. And uh, yeah, so I was helping him with some of those, um, but it didn't really feel like, you know, enough of like enough workload to like fill a day. Um, so I was kind of, you know, snooping around looking for like other things that I could take on just to sort of fill out, fill out my time a bit more. Um, and on a company, <laughs> we, the whole company went, uh, paintballing and I was in a car with a bunch of, um, a bunch of the developers from Flow and they were saying that they really needed a support person because, you know, the person who was doing support for them at that time was uh, a junior iOS developer and he was not super into doing it long term. Um, so I was like, well, I've got time. I can I can help out. Um, and yeah, I think I think it basically like a week or so later, I, I just started um, answering support tickets um, kind of part time and then Eventually it became a full-time thing and yeah, that's, that's kind of how I started. It was just, I, I became, um, I don't think I was the first, um, but I was maybe the, uh, yeah, I wasn't the first support person, but I was, I was, uh, definitely the first in-house support person, I guess. Okay. This is exactly like every startup I've been a part <laughs> of, right? Everybody, you know, kind of chipping in, getting the work done. Everybody's wearing a ton of hats. Uh, now, this was around the same time as Asana's launch. Is that right? Exactly. And Asana, well, by 2012, they had raised $28 million to pursue this exact same space. They had marketing budgets. They could hire a big team um, well before the app made any money. And by 2016, they had raised $100 million. But the other thing that we failed to understand was that um, there was a lot of competitors entering the market. I remember around this time, Dustin Moskovitz, maybe six months after we launched Flow, reached out to me and basically said, hey, I'm building this thing called Asana. Maybe we should buy you guys and we can do this together. Um, and I remember I flew down to San Francisco and I basically said, look, we're pretty happy doing what we're doing. We don't want to join you guys. Um, and you know, essentially he said, look, um, in so many words, I'm a billionaire and I've raised a hundred million dollars. Like we're going to beat you at this in a very nice way. He was like a really, really nice guy. So while they were starting to market flow, Asana was also on a press tear. Here's Dustin Moskowitz, a co-founder of Facebook and the founder of Asana talking with Forbes back in 2013. The best example of you know the sort of the product manifesting our values is just with with transparency. So one of the primary differences between Asana and uh, you know uh, so organizing yourself in Asana versus organizing organizing yourself in email is that the information is accessible to anyone who wants to seek it out. So almost everything we do in the company uh, exists in an, an Asana project somewhere. And whenever you want to go and find out information about what a team is working on or what our, our future plans are, you can just go and do a search for it and, and immediately find it. Much more coming up after a quick word from our sponsors. 
So before the break, Flo had turned down an offer to be acquired by Asana, who basically said, look, we've got a lot more money and we're going to win this market. And Flo was bootstrapped with an arguably better product, but would that be enough to win the hearts and minds of customers? So I was thinking like, we're going to win because we have the best product. And I truly thought that we had this, you know, incredibly beautiful, uh, well-designed, well-thought-out product that was better. And objectively, I really believe it was for easily the first five years. But what I failed to understand is that when you have a competitor who can go out and spend $100 million on marketing, they become the name, right? It's kind of like, you know, there was MailChimp and Campaign Monitor and Emma and all these, um, you know, email newsletter softwares, but MailChimp went out and they blew their brains out on podcast ads. And now everybody just associates email news um, with MailChimp. And so they essentially did that for our part of the industry. And because we had been following all these bootstrapped companies, we didn't put any money into marketing at all. And so it was like a tree fell in the forest and nobody was around to hear it. So they took dramatically different approaches. Flow focused on design and the product while Asana spent so much on marketing while steadily knocking out features. Now, that's not to say that Flow didn't try to advertise. They did produce an advertisement with actually Adam Lisker of Sandwich Video. Like advertising things that I remember um, you know, being produced for Flow was how it was a great way to like plan a party because <laughs> it was just very simple. You know, it was, um, yeah, it was basically very simple to use, very straightforward. Um, wasn't as complicated as a lot of the other stuff out there. It was sort of like marketing it as like, this is the thing that's not going to get in the way of like what you're actually trying to do. Um, yeah. So that was my understanding was just like, it's task management at a very, you know, very simple, a very simple approach to task management. Okay, we should play a clip of that commercial. Flow is an app from Metalab for keeping track of the things you need to get done. This guy has to plan a party, but he's gonna need some help. So he uses Flow to get help from people he knows, like these guys. That's what Flow is for. You figure out what needs to get done and you collaborate with people who can help, like this guy and this guy. Now they have their tasks and they go off to get it all done. Flow can be accessed from a browser, or an iPad, or the attractive Flow iPhone app. The tasks are all done, but he forgot one thing. And it's an important thing, so he assigns it to somebody you trust. She goes off and gets it done, and when she checks it off, the guy knows. Now it's a party. So go to getflow.com and sign up now. Thanks. So this must have been fairly early Adam Lisa Gore work. <laughs> and uh, was that Andrew Wilkinson in the video? Yep. Yes, it was. That's the bootstrap life for you. Well, while Flo is seeing some success in the market, there's one thing that Andrew and the team at Flo underestimated. The thing is I underestimated Asana's ability to catch up on design. I always looked at them and said, these guys have it wrong. They're a bunch of nerdy engineers. And, you know, they, they made this very complex interface that was quite ugly. But, you know, eventually they hired great designers and they caught up in that way. 
Um, so it was a real awakening, rude awakening for me. Um, and then also just realizing that we had to be on multiple platforms. There was, uh, you know, we're competing with companies like Asana that had a 50 person engineering team and we had a five person engineering team, which, you know, you can, you can try and differentiate and just be simpler. But at the end of the day, if you don't have at least basic feature parity on all platforms, you're going to lose customers. So that was a really, really big challenge for us. It sounds like Andrew learned a tough lesson here. And I should say, this isn't even close to the end of the story for Flow, but Andrew made this great point about the value of raising capital in a market like software as a service productivity tools. To make the comparison of like, it's like we created this really great pizza parlor and then a whole bunch of venture-backed pizza parlors opened up all along the street and started selling pizza for 10 cents, but we have to charge $2.00. And they all have these huge R&D labs where they can make their pizza more and more interesting. And we just can't compete. At the end of the day, you have to you have to raise capital to compete or you have to differentiate. And our product just wasn't differentiated enough. We couldn't do the 37 signals thing and say, like, we're going to do way, way less because people who like to-do list systems, unfortunately, like features and have a kind of table stakes expectation. But this lesson aside didn't dissuade them from continuing to pursue flow. No, after all, they had customers, they had fans that were really passionate about the product. Um, well, I mean, we just kind of kept our heads down and kept focusing on making the best product that we could um, and trying to grow it. And to be honest, like if I could go back in time, there's tons of things I would have done differently. And I think we would be a lot bigger um, than we are today. I mean, I'm still happy with where we're at. We have a phenomenal product. We have a great team. We have happy customers, but it's just been a more of a grind than I think it needed to because we never had that capital. Um, you know, like I've come to understand that if you're starting, let's say you want to start a brewery or something like at the end of the day, like it's crazy not to go to the bank or to go to investors and say, Hey, I need to buy of brewing equipment because you need the brewing equipment to make the beer. Right. And I think we never, we were like the, the, um, the guy who decided to bootstrap the brewery and start really, really, really small in the basement and took 10 years to get to a point where we could actually produce at scale. When in reality, we should have just got some bank debt or investors and moved a lot faster so that we could give our customers what they really wanted. So what does flow look like today? That and more after a quick word from our sponsors. So before the break, we mentioned that there were customers and fans who were passionate about the product. Yes, you did. And one of those fans was Daniel Scrivener, who is the head of design at Square. Yeah, so I actually used, I mean, I've been following, so the background story, like the personal side of it is I've known Andrew for as long as Flo's been around, since the super early days of Metalab. Not super closely, but we knew each other. We would kind of interact, um, you know, somewhat often online. Um, But I didn't know him super well. Uh, But when Flo, I I still remember when, um, I think this was maybe one or two years in this wasn't necessarily the very initial kind of you know beta alpha version of, of flow but i remember when uh they shared the adam lizagor video and to me that still is one of those kind of iconic defining moments and but some time has passed between its launch and andrew wilkinson has a lot of other projects in the works 
So there isn't always a CEO of Flow per se, but there's always been kind of a leader of some sort. I don't, re- I, yeah, I don't totally remember what it was like. I do remember, um, yeah, Andrew being very present in like the early days um, and much less so as, yeah, like I think he just like shifted his attention to other businesses and other opportunities. Um, so yeah, we always we always had like a leader in place. There was always somebody who we felt like, oh, we can go to that person and they know, they know what's going on. Um, what was interesting is that like, I think, you know, over a period of time, we had, you know, like three or four people in those in those roles and each of them had kind of a different background. Um, and so, yeah, like when we had a, a designer, I think uh, leading the team, it felt like, yeah, design was was very, very much top of mind. Um, and then we had, a, you know, we had a marketing, um, a marketing guy lead. And for that period of time, it felt like, OK, now we're focusing on like growth and, you know, retention, that kind of thing. Um, eventually yeah so it just like it, it felt like our attention sort of shifted to different to different aspects of the company um depending on who's uh who was in charge uh and uh yeah but i mean i always felt or i, I did for like the first few years at least um that andrew was like kind of still around um and had, yeah and had and like had i mean like i totally understand why like i think it's like his baby. So I think he felt like a certain attachment to it or like felt a a certain sense of ownership and wanted to like continue to um, contribute. Um, But eventually I think, yeah, it just felt like we had the right team in place and, you know, we were able to make decisions and like kind of had everything covered. And I think that at that point, like he he became much less present. Yeah. So that brings us to 2018 and Flow, they're looking for a new CEO who could carry the torch of design within the company. Andrew and I reconnected and and I met Chris um in um in 2018. They came out to Boulder, Colorado. I had moved here a couple years previous and uh we just went and grabbed coffee and literally uh there was nothing Flow wasn't even something on the table. It was just a hey, we'd love to, you know, catch up. Let's all grab coffee while you're um out in Boulder together. And so, you know, I I went to that coffee uh with no expectations at all of where that would go. Um Flow wasn't even on my radar at the time. But, you know, if, if for anyone that knows Andrew and Chris, they're masters at, um, you can always walk into a meeting like that with them. And then suddenly somewhere in the middle of it, it's like the tables have turned and you went there to kind of learn from them and, and see what they were doing. And all of a sudden it's like, well, what are you interested in and what are you doing and, and what do you think you'll do next? And so, you know, that, uh, th- that happened to me in the, in the best way. And, um, you know, uh, like, uh, nothing. So just personally, really for the last five years, the the journey I've been on is trying to find some way to take my background, which doesn't line up very neatly with being an entrepreneur, you know, with kind of uh, leading a company and stepping into that role. But that's something I've always wanted to do. And so I've just been um, kind of on my own personal journey of like, how do I do that? Do I want to do the kind of startup venture capital backed thing? And, you know, what I knew from being at, at, uh, at, at Square for five and a half years from when it was super tiny all the way through IPO, and uh, helping and investing in a lot of early stage companies is um, I think there's a lot that's wonderful about 
that world and that experience, but that wasn't something that I personally wanted to do. I didn't want to be the entrepreneur that raised venture capital. And so what I loved about um, what Andrew and Chris have built and really their approach is I, th I think they're doing it right in that I, I think the holy grail is to build enduring companies. And I think it's very difficult to do that with venture capital. Um, you know, and if you look at the stats, like the some of the biggest companies are venture capital backed. And, and from what I understand, it took another six months of interviews to select Daniel for that CEO role. And when he took over the company, it had just gone through a pretty massive downsizing. Uh, finally, you know, accepted the offer and uh, and um, took over as the CEO of Flow. The company had gone through a pretty massive transition. So the period previous was one of um, just a huge focus on growth. And I think one of the things that kind of came out of that was um, that uh, they just weren't able to turn in the growth numbers that they had had hoped and expected that they would. And so they found themselves in a position where they were, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, hemorrhaging a, a lot of cash every single month. And so what happened before I came into the role was that they did a, a reset of the team where they basically looked at the entire company. They looked at the team that they had. They looked even at the kind of software they were using and the tools and expenses that they had. And they just tried to right size it to where the company was profitable. We had the team members that were absolutely essential. And so I don't have a great sense for what that meant, but I, but my rough sense is the company went from somewhere uh, 30 plus to somewhere around 12 when I took over. And from Jesse's perspective. I mean, it wasn't the first time that we'd had somebody, you know, from the outside, makes it sound like a cult, um, came, <laughs> came on as a leader. So that aspect wasn't, wasn't new. Um, uh, yeah, I guess it was different in that, like, we had, um, we had lost, like, or like our team had kind of shrunk in size, um, in January of last year, um, and was about, you know, like, uh, we had a, you know, our director of engineering was about to go on that leave, you know, in, in a short amount of time. Um, and so it just felt like, uh, yeah, suddenly we didn't have this like wealth of resources that we did at one point. Um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily like the change of leadership um, that was, you know, kind of an adjustment. It was like that coupled with like, oh, we're going to have to rethink about, or we're going to have to rethink how we currently work because we have to do, you know, the same amount or more <laughs> with fewer resources. And so I took over a team that had just gone through a pretty traumatic experience. <laughs> um, I took over a team that, um, you know, had been ex executing kind of toward a vision and, and toward an idea of what they were building. And all of that was kind of gone for, for the moment. And I also took over a team with, with a lot of holes. You know, we didn't have an iOS, we didn't have anyone on iOS or Android when I took over. We didn't have anyone on product. We had no one on design. We had no one in marketing or growth functions. We had no one in customer success. Um, and, uh, and so for me, you know, I think for the team, it was obviously, it was a little bit different. And a lot of the first, I would say three to six months was just a heavy focus on, um, kind of gelling together and getting on the same page and getting into a good groove as a team and really making people feel safe and excited and like we were, um, you know, going to be on a better path. Um, and then, you know, personally for me, it was, um, 
everybody, the, the thing that I, I will say absolutely is everybody that was on the team uh, has been incredible. Like I've been super fortunate to have the team that I had when I, when I took over and we have people on the team that have been with flow for five years, eight years. Some people literally as, you know, as long as the product's been around, have been working on flow. Definitely a tough situation to come into. Yeah. It, which it's part of the job, right? Yeah, it's truly rarely do you enter a new position of everything set up for success. The job was really to figure out the new direction, work within the constraints and grow the business. You know, from the time I took over, uh, we had been basically contracting as a as a business. And so what we've been that what we've been working on over the last 18 months is is uh, two things. And really the way to take maybe a massive step back, the way that I tried to think about it was one, come into the role with as few outside assumptions as possible, really get to know and understand the team and build that trust with the team, and then try to break apart the business and the company and the product so that we were focusing on broadly, this is super, super rough, but what are we going to, how are we going to market the product? Uh, well, maybe to take a step back, it really, I guess, for in my mind, it all started with the product because when I took over and I, you know, we could see that the product was organically not growing. We had people that were actively churning. Um, and so our business was contracting low single digits per month. It would be something like, I don't know, two, 3%, something like that. But that is, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, well, maybe even say it better. If you're the CFO for a company, that's scary. If you're the entrepreneur for for the company, that is um, scary. It, it's definitely something that seems manageable in the short term, but it's absolutely not sustainable in the long term. And so um, my analysis of that was that we had, so there were, there was definitely multiple things that were broken because the product wasn't, I, in my mind, if you have a healthy business that's in a good point of stasis meaning you know you don't really have to spend on on acquiring new customers you likely have a business that's treading water or ideally it's growing low single digits month over month just based off customers that are excited about it and kind of natural growth even just from that customer base um so we didn't have any of that and so I, the the way that i tried to think about it was okay well we're going to basically invert the equation we're going to put all of our focus and attention on the product first and foremost then we, once we, you know, and going forward, we're going to have the product. And this is really something that I've always looked to and taken away from my time at Apple is if you look at, um, you know, everything that Apple does incredibly well, you know, one, one thing that I, um, that I point to all the time is if you look at their marketing and you compare them to something like the Samsung, you know, and you will look at a Samsung ad and, uh, it doesn't focus on the product at all. It invents a story that kind of at the end says, well, if you like this or if you enjoy this, you should go check out the product, but they'll basically fictionalize and create a whole story around it. Whereas Apple, their you know whole ethos from the very beginning is you, we have to first and foremost make the world's most incredible products. Then when we market them, we market them in a very sophisticated way, but the product's always front and center. And to me, that's always just really resonated where if you... Uh, you know, if you get the product right, which is, I think for us and for any business like us, that is the Holy grail. That's which that's where every, all success, all growth, I think stems from. And so we put a lot of attention to the product. And then on top of that, the idea was how can we get the branding and the marketing and the positioning better so that we are no longer a me too product. And we actually can compete on our own terms with our own story and our own I, I, ideas. And then the last thing on top of that was just thinking through things like pricing and packaging, which is kind of a 
I don't know, corny, cheesy label, but it's largely, you know, if you focus on the product and then you find a way to market it, then you also, I think, want to think about how you, how you, um, yeah, how you price and package it. And really what that is in my mind is it just all goes to how are you going to compete in the marketplace and, and, uh, and how are you going to be profitable? So from what I understand, they just released a huge update. It's a major milestone for the company. They're calling it FlowX, and it's as if Slack and Jira, or Linear as I prefer, came together in one beautiful interface. So it's kind of trying to replace two tools with just its its one being, right? Yeah, and it creates a bit of peace for your team. So everything is in one place, it's well organized. The process of overhauling an app after a decade of development. With a fraction of the team that you once had, by the way, Yep, not easy. So here's Daniel. Careful and precise as possible of, you know, we do need to remove some features and functionality that we don't intend to build or we no longer think are, are, are right for flow. And how do we do that without alienating customers? And that's been really, really, really challenging. So now let's get an update. That's right. In the end, Daniel ended up leaving the Flow team in 2022. And I'm not actually able to find any reliable information on who is now leading the team. But the app is still available with the last updates appearing to be back from 2022, according to their public roadmap. So maybe this one is sort of like a cigar butt for the tiny capital crew? A cigar butt? It's a term for when a parent company holds an asset, making minimal investments in it, and extracts just as much cash as it can until finally it dies. Ah, yeah, that actually makes sense. <laughs> that might be it, honestly. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this product story. Make sure to tune in next week to Rocketship.fm. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka. Tune in every Thursday. We'll see you soon. <laughs>